0: Say live 360s weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey. Welcome back. We've
1: got like a one-in, one-out policy going <laughs> we here. We do. Bill uh, Donahue
0: is not on the show today. He is whisking away to better climates than New York City.
1: Yeah, he's at a bachelor party in New Orleans, so we really might not see Bill ever again. <laughs> uh, I, last I heard from him, he got an Uber at the airport and then nothing. That's, so, yeah, hope you're having fun, Bill. Uh, yeah, we haven't had a, we haven't had a proper show in like a month. I don't know.
0: I know. I've really missed having the gang all together. I know. Been, it's been weird this month.
1: Well, and I did want to thank uh, you guys and also producer Steve uh, for for the uh, touching musical medley that uh, closed out the show. No, no, nice. Alex,
0: we'd like to thank you for oh, that. Well. we very much enjoyed having that on the show.
1: Now, it actually could have been it, it could have been even more expansive, and the reason for that is that when Steve was. Uh, obtaining that audio. He got some more audio that night and it was of my wife singing. Oh. Now what, I asked, what's her go-to song? Her, her her go-to song is Maps by the Yeah Yeah Yeah. Uh, oh,
0: that's a good one. I
1: asked her if we could work that in, she said absolutely not. But I'm still working <sighs> on her. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah,
0: we're gonna have to really get that worked out because now that we've introduced karaoke as part of our canon here on the show, I, I want to have it as often as possible.
1: As much as possible. And I think as you guys mentioned, you're next. So you're you're gonna everybody, get got here at some point.
0: Everybody says it like it's a threat.
1: It's just yeah, it's, I don't really know what. secretly
0: thrilling (laughs) (laughs) that's good well um, should we get to the news we should and i have one to talk about today that's um also sort of in the canon of the show something we talk about often Mm -hmm. is how law firms especially big firms have diversity problems yeah um and this week more than 170 general counsels at big companies weighed in on that very issue their chief legal officers penned this open letter demanding that firms hire, retain, promote diverse associates or risk losing all that in-house business.
1: We don't, um, I feel like we don't talk about like general counsels as a, as a body on this show a lot, but um, they carry a lot of sway for reasons that we'll discuss. Um, and it's a very interesting development in the sort of silo of big law diversity issues what what sort of set them off here? Why did they why did they write this 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 letter?
0: So uh, the letter itself points out that a lot of firms uh, have a pattern of promoting mostly male, mostly white partnership classes, mm-hmm. and the GCs in particular um, seem to be reacting to Paul Weiss, whose white and male dominated partner class um, this year was. Trolled on social media when it was announced, mm-hmm. and it got to the point that even the New York Times wrote a big article. Saw that um, they they in particular, the firm had released this um, picture that had each of the new partners. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, was sort was... of a block. Uh, imagine like a block of faces, all of them white, and only one female. So it just became a bit of a lightning rod for what's going on in the industry.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it was almost like. I mean we we all kind of snicker at sort of certain social media foibles now things getting canceled on on Twitter and stuff but it was kind of unmistakable For like like to to see that making the rounds and being like oh like what are we like did did no one even think about this
0: Um, and you know Paul Weiss has responded and said it's not their typical class of course and they they do have um, they do tend to have a track record that's slightly better than some other big law firms but just to sort of recap for people that maybe haven't listened to us talk about this over and over on the show. This is a real problem in law firms. Our most recent diversity report, um, a, a survey we do every year, shows that minorities make up more than thirty percent of law school students, but only eight percent of equity partners. Yeah. the the picture is um, similarly bleak for women. Um, law students make up more than half of women make up more than half of law students, but only twenty one percent of equity partners at firms.
1: Um. So that's sort of the state of play, and there's been this development. What exactly did they say in the letter? I mean, what they, they they wrote the letter. They were unhappy, and and they said what?
0: Well, like like you pointed out, um, GCs really direct a lot of money in the legal industry. It's yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars in business each year, and they're sort of the gatekeepers for that. Yeah. So, the
1: point, like if you're if you're a company, you know, and you and you are become involved in some legal entanglement, your your in-house counsel obviously handles it handles it first, and then you sort of have your your pick of what outside counsel you want to go to. To. I mean, exactly. people have Relationships with certain firms, and it's there's a lot, like you say, there's a lot of money, it's there. Yeah,
0: so they basically vowed in this letter to redirect that spending at firms that promote partner classes that are more diverse. And by diversity, they mean the wide array of that that you can imagine. They mention in the letter. Race, age, gender, sexual orientation, national origin, but basically the whole panoply. They also mention um, that they want attorneys without regard to disability. So it's all of the things we've touched on in the show that they're Mm -hmm. also concerned about.
1: And this is obviously a, a very important thing that was written about all over the place, but there's been other stuff like this afoot, right?
0: Sure. Yeah, the American Bar Association passed a resolution about, um, similar to this, back in 2016. There were about 24 general counsels then that pledged to direct more spending to diverse uh, attorney groups. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017, there was something called the Mansfield Rule. Yeah. I think we've probably talked about that on the show before. That's um, a way to measure if firms have affirmatively considered women and attorneys of color mm-hmm. as at least 30% of the pool of people, they're thinking, about for leadership roles equity partner promotions that kind of stuff yeah um and some of the letter drafters here say flat out that this is just the latest thing to build on those steps and to push it to the next yeah next level
1: we've like this 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 reminds me of while this is a different issue when we talked about like the law students who pressed up against the um or pushed back against the Use of arbitration clauses. Yeah. Now that's a different issue that's like related in some cases to diversity, but the idea being just like some kind of external, right. But influential like body that is not big, law, lo- that is not within the silo of big law. Yeah, it's like applying them figuring pressure. out their power. Yes, that's 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 what I'm getting at. So that's interesting. Um, what um, did what do they like lay out as like a uh, like like you talked about the Mansfield rule and some of these other things? Do the GCs in the letter? Lay out a specific standard that they're going to use as yeah, they consider this. Or? This
0: is more a commitment to the cause of this than okay. straight up like here's our standard for how we measure it, um, which isn't
1: really how that divi- diversity is supposed to work anyway. As we've That's as true. we've mentioned, like it's not some. You know, check like there's not some magic number of women right. partners you have to have, but you have to consider it sort of holistically.
0: Yeah. So all of the GCs that have signed on to this letter say they're going to weigh diversity and how they spend legal dollars. Um, mm-hmm. But there's just like you said, not one set approach. So mm-hmm. some might view a firm's efforts in the or area of diversity as like the sole factor they're going to consider about whether or not they they staff with them. Right. But others are just going to use it as As one of the aspects and the things they consider. So we are going to have to see how this plays out. But the fact that it was 170 GCs all agreeing to this really is a push in the right direction here.
1: For our next news story this week, there was a pretty monumental development in what has quickly become something of a cold war between the United States government and Chinese telecom company Huawei.
0: Oh, I totally want to talk about this one because this hits on a bunch of areas that I've had my my foot in here at Law 360 over right. years. It's got telecom, it's got trade, it's got IP, IP. Mm-hmm. it's it's all the ones I like talking about. Right. So tell me more about what's going on. Well,
1: in case you hadn't been closely paying attention to this, Huawei has basically been positioned as like the definitive sort of existential threat to U.S. economic dominance for the better part of a decade. There's been lawmakers and officials who have warned like they are basically getting a foothold in the next wave of emerging telecommunications, which is a which is a security risk and an economic risk. Um, And this week that all kind of came or began to come to a head with a pair of indictments against Huawei um, by two federal juries or uh, federal grand juries, excuse me. Um, that dealt with alleged IP theft and trade secret theft against T-Mobile and also uh, Huawei's concealing of its dealings with Iran in violation of U.S. sanctions. It's
0: coming from all sides with them. I mean, it's Iran and also T-Mobile, big U.S. company everybody knows. In case you don't know Huawei, I mean, everybody knows T-Mobile in America. Right. So tell us more about the charges. Yeah,
1: let's get to the charges. Like I said, it came from two different grand juries. The first one um, was in Seattle. Um, And that indictment basically charged the company with stealing technology from T-Mobile and specifically uh, T-Mobile's phone testing robot, which is called Tappy.
0: It's called Tappy?
1: This is actually a really interesting one. There's like other stuff to talk about and you should definitely read the story and read the indictment. There's like a zany like coen brothers caper vibe going on here (laughs) basically t-mobile has this robot that tests phones it's called tappy and like seven or eight years ago this was like the envy of the telecommunications uh, industry it gave like pinpoint diagnostics about like what was wrong with your device and how it could be improved this is a huge thing when you're trying to bring phones to market very quickly and like how there's a new phone every other month and all this Huawei basically went to, again, this is all alleged in the indictment, basically went to T-Mobile and said, you know, we want to buy this from you. They said, no, uh, definitely not. And they said, okay, well, can we use it to test some of our phones? And they said yes. And they, of course, had to sign non-disclosure agreements, and they were sort of always asking them questions about how the robot worked. And T-Mobile was like, we're not telling you. You just get to use it, and then that's it. Um, Mm -hmm. At one point, one of the Huawei uh, engineers is alleged to have, like, like the robot has like a pneumatic arm that like like puts the phone in place, and they like took the arm off the robot and took it away from the what like from the plant and like took pictures of it and like sent it back to the Chinese government again. All alleged it was crazy. Um, that's like that that's like the main outlines of the of the Tappy indictment. The other one, a little more garden variety sanctions violation. Uh, this was a grand jury in New York, and they said that Huawei and its CEO Meng Wanzhou. Had basically defrauded their financial partners, their banking partners, by claiming to have sold off their assets in Iran, um, when in fact they were still doing a lot of business in Iran, and this is a violation of uh, of the strong U.S. sanctions that are on
0: that Iran. one. Sounds really familiar. Have yes. they gotten in trouble for something like that before?
1: Well, the CEO, like I said, uh, Meng Wangjo Meng uh, is a woman who was traveling. Through Canada last month, and federal prosecutors put out a charge for her arrest Ah. on these same, on similar Iran sanctions charges, and she's been held in Canada for the better part of a month now. They're working on extradition, Um, and that kind of feeds into why this is more than just some Chinese company that's in trouble with U.S. law. The U.S. pursues, you know, sort of foreign companies for all kinds of violations of our own laws all the time. But I can't stress enough. Like there is the head of China's biggest telecom company yeah, currently it's a huge in current like the CEO is in custody, not in U.S. custody, in Canadian custody, but at like on U.S. charges. That's like I mean, imagine if Steve Jobs like just went to China and got arrested there. Right, it's that's like, crazy. Really crazy, and the reason is because it's when you deal with. Allegations of IP theft in China. It's not just like when a European company is like, oh, they kind of stole my patent or they didn't like they they didn't honor this licensing agreement correctly. And then, you know, maybe they're found guilty in court or maybe they pay a fine or whatever the whatever the issue is because of the Chinese government's heavy influence in its economy. This is all like a proxy war, not just for these individual companies who are competing, but like the future of the nation, like, of yeah. the U.S. and China relationship as it stands now, which, of course, has been extremely fraught for a long time, and especially in the last couple of years well, the Trump administration. And
0: especially as it relates to how they handle IP and trade secrets and these related issues. I mean, as our trade reporter, you've written extensively about how Trump has made a real issue of how the Chinese are handling um, issues of IP.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the Obama administration, even the Bush administration prior, definitely flexed some level of enforcement muscles against China but it was almost always sort of just a secondary effort to a more like diplomatic kind of thing where right. it's like okay we have these problems and we should like talk about how to solve them rather than just like you know whacking you with like federal indictments and doing all that stuff and this hap these this that has changed the Trump administration is leaning on that much more it's sort of Uh, enforcing laws first and kind of asking questions later about, you know, thinking about what the implications are for the U.S.-China relationship.
0: Yeah, it seems like they really weren't thinking much about the broader relationship because didn't we just have a Chinese delegation in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, well, these these indictments came down just mere days before Chinese officials arrived in Washington in the middle of this week. They're actually wrapping up today, Thursday, as we're recording for these trade talks that, uh, that that the Trump administration has undertaken that's a whole other thing which uh, centers a lot around the United States trying to change Chinese IP rules and technology right. transfer rules um, and that kind of stuff can be boring um, and um, often doesn't involve it involves policy changes it doesn't involve u.s. criminal proceedings yeah this is a really weird backdrop companies um but by all accounts it did come up this week probably will continue to come up especially if this huawei ceo gets extradited to the u.s. and is like on trial here for criminal charges um the stakes are extremely high there's sort of a race to be the have have dominance over the 5g wireless network Um, And there are, like, manifold implications uh, for what's going on here, and these indictments uh, appear to just be the tip of the iceberg.
0: boomer attorneys who hung their shingles in small towns around the country are starting to retire. And fewer and fewer new lawyers are willing to replace them. That's leaving many residents with limited or even no access to legal help. We're joined now by Jack Carp, who wrote about the issue for our Access to Justice newsletter. Welcome to the show, Jack.
2: Thanks,
1: Amber. Creeping out from behind the copy desk, flying yes. uh, right. <laughs> his trade as a, a, a byliner. By- yeah, yeah. Very so, good.
0: Jack, this story was really interesting because I hadn't really thought a lot about what's going on in rural communities and, and lawyers who live and serve those communities. So can you tell us what, what's up in these small towns?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, so basically what's happening is a lot of attorneys who kind of set up shop in a lot of small towns around the country um, 40, 50 years ago. Are now in their 60s and 70s. They're getting ready to retire. Some of them are already retiring, and new younger attorneys do not want to go to those areas to replace them. You know, their new attorneys are all clumping in major urban areas, and so these rural areas are coming to a point where there's just no attorneys in some places and some people have to drive hundreds of miles just to get, you know, a will or a deed drawn up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's just very few, if any, lawyers in a lot of these places. That kind
0: of reminds me of, you hear this sometimes, um, the term food deserts when they're talking about like a neighborhood yes. with no supermarket. Yeah. Is it like that yes, only for exactly. lawyers? exactly.
2: Actually, the term that I heard a lot when I was researching the story that I really love is the silver tsunami.
1: Oh, because
0: of all the retirement, exactly sure. right.
2: Well,
1: it's it's just like you you made the reference to you know to grocery stores or a lack of like you know sophisticated food channels, but like there is a thread in your story that's just sort of like the the world has its problems and this country has its problems, but like mostly like the service economy now is very much engineered for stuff to like for stuff like this to not happen. The idea of just like if you need a service, like it's usually pretty easy for you to get it, right? And the idea that there are you know, sort of not insignificant patches, like wide patches of land where like the, the, like the legal profession as we know it just like doesn't exist is really wild. is really interesting. Story.
0: Well, can you tell us how bad it is? I mean, are there any statistics about, you know, how how this dearth of lawyers is playing out?
2: Absolutely. So um, one of the statistics I love that I think encompasses kind of the whole issue is that, um, t- so 20% of Americans about, give or take, live in what we would call rural areas in the country, but only 2% of lawyers practice in those areas. Oh, wow. Yeah, there that's are, a big gap. That is a big gap. And there's places like Nebraska that currently have 11 counties with zero lawyers in them. And you talked to a lot of the lawyers
1: who are sort Absolutely. of like the, the last guard of, of of whatever sort of like legal uh, assemblage is in place there. We discussed it a little bit. You were talking about the sort of tax that it puts on people who Mm -hmm. want like very – you know, sort of entry level legal work done. I mean, what what is the impact of, of stuff like this? Like, what does it do to a community
2: when there's like one lawyer or no lawyers? Well, obviously, the biggest impact is on people who need legal services, and right. that isn't just you know we think of legal services. Oh, you get sued, you're suing somebody, you get arrested for a crime, and those are big right. emergencies. Yeah, we we at Law Three Sixty report about like you know high high
1: sure. level you know explosive lawsuits between financial behemoths. Right. It, exactly. It, it manifests in different
2: ways in places. Like right. And this. there's plenty of people who need lawyers for it. Much smaller things like having deeds and wills drawn up, real estate sales, estate issues. Um, you know, there's people who have, you know, children with disabilities who have to negotiate their education plans. There's if you want to start a business
1: right, or something, starting a business,
0: yeah, yeah a this great is real mom and pop kind of stuff. Exactly. Because when you started that list where you were like, need a will, need something with a deed, I was like, Yeah, all the things my parents would have wanted an attorney for. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so they're not necessarily the things that, you know, you have a big case that you need a lot of representation for. They might be something that you need to consult a lawyer for an hour for. And so a lot of these people are having to drive 100, 200 miles for that consult because there mm-hmm. are just no lawyers near where they live. I think yeah, that's, yeah. that's
0: really tricky if you have to travel for a lawyer. So, I mean, I would imagine as you talk to people, it's Eliminating some maybe lower income people or people without absolutely you know, easy modes of transportation from getting to lawyers right. at all. One
2: of the one of the people I, I spoke to pointed out, you know, there are in in these areas, you know, most people rely on cars, but there are lower income people who don't have automobiles and who can't drive places. And one of the people I spoke with pointed out that there are also counties, these same counties, where there's almost no public transportation, where like one county has- There's a correlation. Exactly. There was one county that that she spoke about that had one bus a day going to the county seat where the courthouse is. So if you have to go to the courthouse and you don't have a car, there's that one bus and that's it. And so that could be your entire day. And so now you have to take off of work. And then right. you lose money doing that, or you have to pay for childcare.
1: This so, is what I'm talking about. Like this is like an inter like like there's like a delicate like, uh you know interwovenness of the service economy, and it's made yeah, by a, a thread ecosystem. in these places. Right. Sure,
0: it's a real ecosystem. And I mean, I think your story. Um, and I really recommend that uh, everybody go read this because our access to Justice Wire uh, is actually outside our paywall, yeah. listeners. <laughs> so anybody can read this great story. Um, but it's really interesting too. Because it's sort of an underlying theme is just how important lawyers are in their community Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah.
2: It's not just an ecosystem in terms of service. It's also an ecosystem in terms of the community. So lawyers don't just provide legal services in a small town. These are also people who serve on the school board, who run for office, who coach little league teams, who, you know, who bring in professionals from other professions. And yeah. so these small towns and these rural areas... Are not only losing legal services; they're losing, the, you know, the educational capital yeah, that lawyers bring into a community. It, it
1: raises questions about like the, the role of the lawyer in society, exactly. not just in his or her profession or, right. ca- or, or, or professional capacity. Um, I think we should talk. I mean, you've you've ably laid out what the picture is. I think we should talk about. Um, the things people told you about why this is happening. I mean, there is a sort of coastal drift happening in the nation writ large.
0: I mean, I can say, as a person who went to law school, I'm from West Virginia, small state, lots of rural areas, but I ended up going to law school in a bigger city and never went back. Right. So that's at least the start of the problem. Exactly, and I
2: think there's two... Huge reasons for that, and there's you know smaller reasons that are encompassed by those two. But the first one is student debt. Yeah, you know a lot of law school students are graduating with these ridiculously huge amounts of student debt. I and know
0: a lot about that guy. I, I,
2: I, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> and because of that debt, they feel almost compelled to go to work for these large corporate law firms that will pay them a good, solid salary, as opposed to going out into what we would call the middle of nowhere and setting up their own shop or working for a small rural practice where you have kind of the vicissitudes of working your own thing. It's a lot about, you know, worrying about how am I going to pay these student loan bills if I move to a rural area? Sure, because
0: I'm sure in these rural areas, you're either working at a really very tiny firm with maybe one or two other lawyers or you might be going out on your own.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, and going out yeah. on your
0: own has its own huge right. uh, that, entry
2: barrier. And that was you know another kind of smaller subset of that issue that I heard from a few people is there's also a lack of mentorship in these areas. Yeah. You know, you're setting up your own shop. You don't have other older attorneys. You to need kind at of least two
1: lawyers for a mentor-mentee exactly. relationship <laughs> yes. to take root. And
2: it sounds like that's a big ask
1: in for some, some of these, of these situations. Counties, yeah. Um, yeah. So
0: if you have all this debt, I mean, it does make some logical sense that you're like, oh, I got to go with the safe bet. Absolutely. I got to well, stay in a city and where I, I know I can pay this off.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like I bring this up a lot on the show, but if you squint hard enough here, you can see the outlines of another millennials killed the rural <laughs> lawyer story, and the answer as to why and all like like we're saying is all of all of those stories is always about the crushing student debt. Right, Although I absolutely. suppose a lot of the people graduating law school now probably aren't millennials anymore. But yeah, it's but, but but I bring that up yeah. only to say it is a universal problem which is manifesting here in the legal industry. I mean,
2: and the other part of it is kind of what you were saying about this kind of coastal drift. That's the other part of the equation is it's it's. I think it's mainly student debt, but it's definitely not only student debt. There are also cultural issues around people like Amber, yeah, you know, sure. don't want to move back to rural areas after they go away for school. There are more jobs in urban areas. Yeah. There are more cultural, you know, things in urban areas. There are more people of their age bracket in urban areas. I think one of the things I also heard a lot from you know new attorneys who thought about going to rural areas um, often didn't because. Either they were concerned, how am I ever going to meet a partner if I move to a small town, or mm-hmm. if they already had a partner, how is my partner ever going to find a job in a small town?
1: Yeah, you had one of my very favorite quotes. It's in the story. Um, you talked to a guy, Phil Garland, who mm-hmm. is an attorney in Iowa, and he was talking about uh offering uh a a law student who was working at his clerk uh, working as his clerk a job, <laughs> and then and then he told you this is a quote from your story. She fell in love with a microbiologist, and we didn't have any openings at Subway or Hardy's for microbiologist so she didn't come here um <laughs> which, which is one of my favorites too yeah i mean it's just it's just a different manifestation of the the sort of awkward fit of some of these places for you know people who are entering the workforce now um it's just interesting to read absolutely about.
2: yeah
0: so i mean i feel like we're painting a really sad portrait for the for big parts of the country um What are people doing to fix this? I mean, other people must have realized this is a big problem. Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. I mean, and to be honest, like it's these older lawyers who are retiring who kind of are, you know, at the top top tiers of the state bar associations who are kind of leading the charge on dealing with these issues. It's mostly the state bar associations in some law schools in rural areas as well. But what some of these um, states are doing, South Dakota is kind of one of the leaders in this field right now. Which Um, makes
0: sense because they've got, uh, I'm sure, a lot of areas that have only a few. It's a big state, as
2: it turns out. I think it may be considered the most rural state in the country. Don't don't quote me on that, but (laughs) I think it might be. Um, So what they started doing is um, operating this program where they're offering new lawyers a certain amount of money each year for five years if those lawyers are willing to – practice and live in rural communities for five years. So I, th- I think it's $12,500 per year. So over five years, that's a large chunk of change that is designated for helping you pay off your student loans.
0: Yeah, that does sort of offset what we were talking about, that nervousness about how will I pay exactly. back these so loans you, you while I'm myself established. You know
2: you have at least like a minimum floor that you're mm-hmm. going to right. get that will help You know, pay off some of these loans. And so you're not as worried about, you know, the ups and downs of running a small practice in a small town.
0: Are other states doing things that aren't just? Pushing some money Absolutely. at the problem, yeah. I
2: mean that that's definitely the South Dakota is definitely doing the money thing. Um, what what a lot of other states like Iowa, where the, the Phil Garland he yeah. mentioned is from, and Nebraska are there. What they're working on is trying to introduce law students to the idea of rural practice. So um, you know Iowa is running this program where they orchestrate. Meet and greets um they actually called it they mo- they said they modeled it after speed dating. <laughs> oh that's Well yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean when I was reading about this it was like this
1: is sort of the older lawyer as cultural anthropologist or exactly. it's like hey come out here and you yes. see you can help you can help this this person set up an LLC to open right. a new general store. Exactly. You know what though uh,
0: this is the the start of every like Hallmark Christmas movie yeah. or Lifetime movie <laughs> where it's like um girl from the big city comes exactly. back and realizes small town, town life's pretty cool. good. Yeah. yeah.
2: So yes, yeah, so that's exactly what these older lawyers are trying to sell. So they're right. they're they're basically kind of trying to connect new young lawyers in law school and sometimes the the program in Nebraska is really interesting cuz they're actually going all the way back to undergraduates. They're trying oh, wow. to oh, connect gotcha. these new lawyers with older lawyers in rural areas. And basically to show these new lawyers that rural practice is an option and it's a sure. viable option. And so in Iowa, what they're trying to do is set up clerkships for you know lawyers, not yet lawyers, students who are in law school yeah. for a second, third years to go out to rural areas and clerk for these older retiring attorneys in the hopes that when the older attorneys retire, they will kind of Move, pass their practice on to these these lawyers who are clerking for them and who they may hire as associates when they graduate. It,
1: it's an interesting appeal. I mean, obviously, there you've you've laid out basically two buckets of plan, which is yeah. like one, we will literally subsidize your your crushing student debt. <laughs> the other, we will we will sort of acclimate you emotionally, intellectually to this kind of job. Perhaps there can be a mingling of the two at some point. But it is interesting, and this gets to what you mm-hmm. were saying at the beginning of like you know obviously the appeal of working for a white shoe firm in dc or here in new york you know you can make a lot of money and work on these very impactful cases but like you say i mean if you if you're able to position it in a way of like you know here you're not just a lawyer you are like a community figure Absolutely. like you are central to the you know local economy of you know a town or or a, or a county maybe in in many instances have been like let left behind by the economy and politics and all the other stuff. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting.
2: And that's one of the things I heard from the rural lawyers I did speak with is you know this kind of overarching sense that it is very gratifying doing this kind of law in these kinds of places, that it's mm-hmm. very diverse, it's very challenging, you're never doing the same thing over and over. And you are a member of the community. You get to know your clients. There's kind of a, a more of a bond than you would have at like a white shoe law firm with yeah. corporate clients. Um, but to talk about, you know, you had said um, about those two kind of buckets overlapping. Yeah. They are overlapping in Nebraska, which oh, I think okay. is really interesting, which is their program. What they're doing there is they are offering free undergraduate college to undergraduate students as well as automatic admission to Nebraska College of Law. Oh, wow. you know, as long as they keep a certain GPA and LSAT scores in exchange for the promise that when they graduate law school, they will go to these rural areas and practice in those areas.
0: I've loved talking about this with you, Jack, but um, I gotta keep my mom away from this podcast. (laughs) She is so gonna want me to move home now. Uh, Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome, guys. Show is something offbeat, and Alex, I've been waiting for you to get back because I watched both Fire Festival documentaries, right? I thought you might have too. This,
1: I, I, I did indeed. Of, um, of
0: course, you did. That's great. We can t- finally talk about these. Well,
1: this is like, first of all, this is like, this is an OG pro se story. This was one it of the is. first like offbeats we'd or maybe even did in the main segment, but uh, this, this stretches back to the early days of the show, so it has a I've been fascinated with my it heart. for years, yeah. Um, I, you know when i started to wa- like when i started to watch them i was like oh my god i'm obsessed with the story i love the story i'll watch a million documentaries i got to say did you have fatigue i, I we're going to talk about that i'm i'm a little I've maybe had enough Fire Fest for a while.
0: You know what? <laughs> Just news-wise. I'm very disappointed in you because <laughs> I don't think I'll ever have enough Fire Fest. Okay. Remember how much I love Naruto, the monkey that took the selfie? Yeah, yeah. This is my new Naruto. Okay. I love this yeah. story so much. Yeah. I watched both the documentaries. Yeah. found both fascinating. They're good.
1: They, they kind of like, there's- The, like, hot conversation to have on the internet is, like, which one's better and all this, and there's all kinds of drama about, like, the production of them and stuff, which we don't need to get into. I thought they actually kind of work well as compliments to one another. I thought that, too. Because the Hulu one sort of, well, the the, the Netflix one is much more forensic. Like, it just kind of lays out exactly what happened with the festival and the key players and, like, on the ground type of stuff. The Hulu one does that as well, but also makes sort of, like, a broader statement about the about the cultural forces that gave right. that allowed the firefest to exist. And they both they they, they both kind of kind of one-hand washes the other there. For
0: me, I felt like the Netflix one, I enjoyed the actual production value of that one more. It, is, yeah. it was better put better constructed. the Hulu one, it's, the Hulu one yeah. has its own it has almost I don't want to use the word charm. That's not quite right. Yeah. But it's got more verve, I yeah. thought. Um but you did bring up something there uh one of the things that the Hulu One does is sort of like you said, sort of diagnose this broader social problem. Yeah. A lot of that rests on the back of of Instagram influencers. Yes. Who and- played
1: a key role in in this this uh dumpster fire festival uh becoming sure. becoming what it did.
0: Yeah, so that is Something I wanted to bring up while we were talking about this as sort of the crux of our offbeat here. Yeah,
1: we do have actual news. This, <laughs> this isn't just do, the, the Firefest right. Doc Corner with with <laughs> Alex and Amber, but yeah. Although
0: I'd like that. too. That would
1: be nice. Um, well, it sounds like we're gonna get. We might get more content. So uh, I don't know.
0: So there's a related bankruptcy case that was in the news this week. A Manhattan federal judge gave a bankruptcy trustee permission to subpoena companies like Kylie Jenner's company, some of the biggest modeling agencies and other people that received about 5.3 million dollars from Fire Festival LLC.
1: See, these people are in a unique position cuz they actually got money from the <laughs> Fire Festival people, which is very different than almost every other player in the story who gave money away for like no remuneration. Um. Why? Okay. So the so the bankruptcy trustee is overseeing the fire fe, the, the the fire LLC. Yep. Bankruptcy. Why do they need these? What? Why? Why are, they, why are they subpoenaing these? These. So
0: they're trying to figure out um the value that the festival company received for paying out this money and and like we said, it, a lot of it went to these so called influencers. Yeah. Um. And you know, I I know you're gonna be really surprised since you've watched both documentaries, yeah. but. The bankruptcy trustee has said many times that Billy McFarland, who set up the festival, was the CEO of the parent company, Fire Media, mm-hmm. and and involved in all of this. He didn't make typical disclosures, and he didn't keep great books. The bookkeeping or
1: not on, not on the level, as it turns out.
0: <laughs> as it turns out, yeah. so I know shocking for anyone you had your festival in a
1: literal tax haven, so that was <laughs> something. But so
0: because he didn't keep good records, this trustee is trying to piece together a financial picture. And so that's why they're going to subpoena these various companies that received money. And in some circumstances, like if a fraud was found, which is very possible here, (laughs) um, transfers in this period leading up to a Fire Festival LLC bankruptcy could be voided and the money clawed back to pay other creditors who would be. Uh, higher in line to mm-hmm. receive the money yeah. so that's why they're trying to figure this all out
1: and what like let's let's talk a little bit more about the payments I mean I know the 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 sums thrown around in court documents and in these documentaries um, are substantial yeah
0: they're uh, <laughs> honestly I was a little shocked by some of the sums yeah. in these documentaries so um, the subpoenas that are going to modeling agencies an example would be IMG I think a lot of people have heard of that one. They got 1.2 million dollars, and DNA Model Management got about 300 thousand dollars. That's likely for uh, models who have appeared in the promotional videos. Yeah. So we saw some of that in this the documentary, some of that footage. They're
1: playing with the pigs. Yeah. They're Jetting around and in Donzi boats. And
0: it's people you know. It's Bella Hadid. It's Haley Baldwin. It's very recognizable yeah. faces there. Yeah. Then there's this Kendall Jenner. Company subpoena. Yeah. I find this one fascinating. So that uh, the bankruptcy trustee says that that company was paid about two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. One of the documentaries, I think the Netflix one, alleges that Kendall got two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for one single Instagram post,
1: yeah. I mean, I can be had for a lot less if anyone's listening. Uh, <laughs> if, if anyone's like influencer trolling, Same. I can be had for considerably less.
0: I mean, that's allegedly Kendall Jenner's going right. That's what for I'm saying. A yeah, Instagram post.
1: This, I mean, I am I am for anything that allows the legal system to like collide head on with internet culture. I'm always here yeah. for it. We talked about like. People peppering their filings with too many movie quotes and making judges angry. I think like the next wave of that might be like internet speak. Oh, it's sure. like, Your Honor, the other side has subpoenaed our email records. We would ask the court that they miss us with that.
0: <laughs> I can't wait for that. I this. mean, that does
1: that's in the that's in play here, I
0: think. <laughs> well, I mean, I think for me the big takeaway is, you know, you see if you're on Instagram, a lot of these Uh, You know, reality stars, uh, models, other celebrities promoting all sorts of things. And you do always wonder, at least I do, how much are they getting paid for this? And there's not clear answers to that all the time. We could have some actual records here in a bankruptcy case that indicate exactly how much. A big name celebrity is getting for that kind of stuff,
1: and I am sure that that information will leave us with a uh, uh, a very not bitter taste in our mouth about the state of the, <laughs> about the state of the, our, our culture. Yeah, let's yeah. leave
0: off on that sour cool. note there. Yeah. Thanks for a great show today, Alex. Thank you. We have some other people to thank: our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week Jack Carp, and contributing reporters Stuart Bishop, Kelsey Griffiths, Michelle Gorman, and Jack Newsham. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find Jack's great story that was part of our access to Justice Wire. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, all the places you find podcasts. And we'd love if you leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Thanks and see you again next week.